0: If you open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We're just going to look at one verse. I'm going to read the first six here in a moment, but there is enough in the first verse to keep us occupied for a while. Before we begin, I think it's helpful since it has been a couple of weeks and Since it's been months since we began the study of Ephesians back in chapter 1 in January. It's helpful to do just a little bit of review because we're at a transition point. And I speak that in general. Generally speaking, the first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrine. The last three chapters are more practical applications of those doctrines. Up to this point, the first three chapters contain 66 verses. And in those 66 verses, there has only been one command. That command is found in the 11th verse of chapter 2, where we are told there to remember that we were once without Christ and far off, but now we have been brought near by his blood. That's the central thing in that first doctrinal section that Paul would have us to remember and don't forget it is in the form of an imperative command you must from time to time as the ephesians call to mind intentionally how far away you once were and what christ has done to bring you near this verse seems to be really the summary of the first three chapters The first three chapters tell us everything that God did in Christ for us who were far off to bring us near. So while there is only one command in the first 66 verses, the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, contain more practical commands for everyday life than any other book of the New Testament in its entirety. That's right. The last 3 verses, or excuse me, last 3 chapters of Ephesians contain more practical applications for daily life than the entirety of the book of Romans, than the entirety of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or Galatians. Very often they come to us in short, choppy sentences, do this, do that, because of what Christ has done for you. And as we begin to perform these commands in the power of the Spirit of Christ and by His grace, that's an important point to make here at the outset, none of these things can be kept in our own strength. You will fail, fail often, fail miserably. If you think that what Paul is asking, what the Spirit of God is requiring of us is to be carried out through rank, discipline, or physical strength, or intellectual ability, or anything of the like. When we combine the doctrine and the practice of Ephesians, or any of Paul's books, as we grow in both our understanding and our practice, we call that spiritual growth or maturity. And real spiritual growth involves both aspects. In fact, both are essential ingredients to spiritual maturity. We can't grow spiritually without knowing the doctrine. We won't grow spiritually in practice until we have our practices based upon the doctrine that we know. So you see how these two things go together. Here's another interesting point before I read these first six verses. First six verses will bear this out. The spiritual growth and maturity of individual believers is measured in the light of the body of believers. If you read just the first 16 verses of chapter 4, which talks about the unity through great diversity, you can't get away from the fact that individual believers are given gifts not for their own use not for their own edification, but for the benefit of the entire body. I read this this week from a man named Howard Honer. He says, Individual spiritual growth that is not shared with the rest of the body is not true spiritual growth or maturity. Today's individualism highly prizes independence. The New Testament envisions, however, individuals dependent on both the Lord and the fellow members of the body in a corporate setting. I realize a sentence like that or even a thought like that does indeed fly in the face of today's individualism. But what I would encourage you to do is read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and see if you can't find a hearty agreement with what has just been said. Christ gave gifts to men. That verse is found in the context of Christ giving gifts to his church and blessing his church. There's no place in the scriptures, either in Ephesians or anywhere in the Old Testament, nor in the New, that gives ground or justification for us to be individualistic Christians. God has saved you And if He has saved you, the Spirit of God indwells you, and He has enabled you or gifted you for some purpose and some function in the body. The eye, Paul would say in another place, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor does that operate in the the reverse. But God has placed the members of the body in the body just as He has seen fit. And so with that in mind, if you'll read with me the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness. With long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Father, we're asking for your help in understanding. We're asking for your help in application of these great truths and we do so for Christ's sake and not our own and in his name amen the first verse Paul says I therefore now you've heard a lot of preaching about the word therefore in your Christian life no doubt but the word is here for a reason it's grabbing the entirety of the first three chapters bringing them to the table and setting them down and saying what i am about to call you to is resting upon everything that i have told you to this point martin lord jones says that this word introduces us to the doctrine of sanctification Sanctification, of course, being that process in which a believer grows more and more over time by the ministry of the Word and Spirit to be more and more like Christ, to put off his flesh or her flesh more and more, and to put on the new man more and more. It's something that is not a gift to be received, sanctification, in that it's different than justification, but it is a doctrine that has to be worked out in light of the gospel. And I like what he goes on to say here. He says, you cannot have Christ as your justification and then sometime later take him as your sanctification. Why is that? Because he is a whole Christ and he is indivisible. If you will have him as Lord, if you will have him as Savior, then you will have him as Lord and King. You can't pick and choose what part of Christ you will have and you will not have. So far in the first three chapters, we've been told who the church is. We call these indicative statements. This is knowledge, doctrinal knowledge, having been imparted to us. We've been told in chapter 1 what God has done for us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were told in the first part of chapter 2 what He has done in us. He has made us alive again. We were told in the second part of chapter 2 and 3 what he has done between us as between Jew and Gentile bringing us together. Now in verses chapters 4 through 6 there is an expectation placed upon us by Paul and by the spirit that is seen in the word beseech which we'll get to in a moment to become who we really are. To be in practice that which we have been described as in the first three chapters. You might consider it this way. The first three chapters of Ephesians, you can see the church from a heavenly perspective. All these high and lofty and holy doctrines. But then in the last three chapters, you see the real down-to-earth view of the church, bearing with one another, praying with one another, ministering their gifts to one another, experiencing hardship and heartache with one another. All of these things come together. One person has said we move from mind-stretching theology in the first three chapters to -to down-to-earth implications in the last three chapters. Notice how Paul says this in verse 1. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. So before we move on, let me address what I'll call the pleading of a prisoner, or the plea of a prisoner. Paul was imprisoned for living the Christian life, not just knowing certain doctrines about it. He was imprisoned because what he knew about Christ actually affected what he did. He knew Christ was a Savior, so he preached Him as a Savior. He knew Christ had called him to preach the gospel, to disciple, to baptize, and so he didn't just stay content with that knowledge, he actually put it into practice. And he found himself imprisoned it's almost as if paul wears his chains more proudly than a king would even wear his crown everywhere you see paul he is boasting and glorying in the fact that he is a prisoner notice he says not of rome if that's indeed where he was he says i am a prisoner of the lord he had been chained because of his testimony to jesus christ and after now he has instructed the ephesians he has prayed for them we studied those two great prayers one in chapter one chapter three now he begins to beseech them to beg them concerning something but before we look at the actual request he is making let's look at the strength of the word beseech the new king james which i read from translates this one word several different ways in the New Testament. It uses the word beg, urge, plead, entreat, appeal. Literally, this word in Greek means to come alongside, to encourage. It's the same word that begins the practical application section of the book of Romans in chapter 12 where Paul calls there the Roman Christians and us in light of them to present their bodies a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Paul is beseeching them. He is begging them. He is making an appeal. He is urgently pleading with them to put the doctrine that he has taught them into practice. Paul never intended to fill heads only. The filling of the mind, the renewing of the mind was intentional. And in the New Testament, it always leads to a response. Where there is first doctrine, then the New Testament will call you to duty. Do something with what you know. And this is not something that is exclusive to this one verse in Ephesians 4 listen to Philippians 1:27 Paul says the same thing only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 he says walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 I pray that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom And into his glory. And if we need another voice other than the Apostle Paul. Listen to what James would say along the same lines. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Do you remember the very next part of that verse? It's an important part of that verse in James chapter 1 verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So again, James and Paul are in great agreement that if all you do is hear the doctrine and store it away, even if you can reproduce it upon request, but yet it has no real effect on your life, then you are under self-deception. The idea or the thinking that you know a lot And it doesn't affect the way that you live. Reveals you, or it would reveal me, to be under self-deception. For Paul, for the New Testament, for Christ, for the Spirit of God who inspired it, knowing without practicing is not enough. Now I've already mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones once. This may be the last time I mention him today, I'm not sure, but... He equates this with he uses the illustration of the transfiguration of Christ. And he gives it this he gives it in this way. And you remember back in Matthew 25, Peter, James and John went up the mountain with Christ. While they were there, he was transfigured before them. His he became bright and shining and his glory was displayed. His clothing became white more so than any launderer on earth could make them. Peter, James, and John took all of this in. They saw Moses and Elijah. And even though the scripture says that Peter didn't really know what to say, he spoke anyway, and he said, Lord, I'm paraphrasing, let me build three tabernacles. What was Peter saying? I think Martin Lloyd-Jones' comments here are, are appropriate. He said, Peter wanted to stay on that mountain with the glorious Christ. Who could blame him, right? That's, that's a desire. Because he knew what was at the foot of the mountain. What was at the foot of the mountain were people with real needs. There was a father there waiting for them with a the, with the young boy who had a, a problem. and He needed their help. He knew that there were people who were hungry. There were people who at times wanted to take the life of this Christ who was now brilliant in glory. He wanted to stay there. The correlation is to be made. The first three chapters of Ephesians are the bright shining of the glorious Christ and all the doctrines concerning our salvation, what God has done for us before the foundation of the world in Christ. We read these things. We glory in these things. We love these things. It's as if we are appearing at, at Christ in all of His glory and we want to stay there and just immerse ourselves in the doctrines that are so glorious. But what about the latter half of Ephesians that calls us to go back down the mountain into the muck and the mire of real life and tells us things like, Husbands, love your wife. Wife, love your husband. Submit to him. Children, obey your parents. Walk as children of light. Quit your lying. Lying. Quit your foul speech. All of these types of things. And so the correlation is here that we cannot stay solely in the first three chapters of Ephesians and all of the glorious doctrine. There has to be a point in our lives, there must be a point in our lives where they actually impact the things that we do. And Lord Jones closes that illustration by saying this, we have no right to stop at the end of chapter 3. And if you were to go and read his words, he said, that was his great temptation. I've preached all of this great glorious doctrine. Now let's just close the book and glory in it for a while. We have no right to stop there. And he says, I'm talking especially with those people who are evangelically minded and whose danger is to stop at doctrine only. See, it's one thing to know things like Paul says, put away lying later in chapter 4. It's one thing to know that we are not supposed to let the sun go down on our wrath. It's one thing to know that we are not to give place to the devil or let him who stole steal no longer. It's one thing to know that we are to labor working what is good with our hands so that we may have something to give him who, is, who has need. It's another thing to know that there is no corrupt word that is to proceed out of our mouths. It's another thing altogether to actually do those things by the help and the power of the spirit of God and by much grace to actually do those things so we've seen this plea from the prisoner Paul I beseech you what is he beseeching them to he is beseeching them to be real he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And it doesn't take long as you're reading Paul's epistles to realize when he speaks of walking, he's not talking for going for a, about going for a stroll. He's talking about the way you live. And this is one of the central themes of the rest of this epistle. Not only here in verse 1 does he say walk worthy of the Lord, calling them to live a life that matches their gospel profession. But in verse 17, he says, you are, we are no longer to walk as the Gentiles in the futility of our minds. In chapter 5 and verse 2, he says that we are to walk in love, even as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. Then in verse 8 of chapter 5, we are to walk as children of light. In verse 15 of chapter 5, we are to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And we've already run across this word twice in the second chapter. Chapter 2, verse 2, speaking to the unconverted man in his natural state, Paul says, you once walked according to the course of the world. And then post-conversion in chapter 10 of verse 2, he says, now we are to walk in the good works which were prepared for us beforehand by our Father. So this word is all-encompassing of your life. Probably best seen in the 15th verse of chapter 5, walk circumspectly, which we'll get to that in time, Lord willing, but it means everything about your life. Circumspect all around you should be matching your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to listen to a few explanations of what it means to walk worthy. Matthew Henry says, to walk worthy means to live in an agreeable, suitable, agreeably and suitably to those happy circumstances into which the grace of God has brought you. Happy circumstances. The Lord, by grace, has called you out of darkness and now cemented your feet into the light of Christ. Your life is to reflect such happy circumstances as that. Another person has said, to walk worthy of the Lord is to live in such a way that there is nothing on our minds other than to strive, struggle, and cast off our sins and put on the righteousness of God. If we're to walk worthy of our calling with which we were called, then there is going to be a real day-by-day, if not hour-by-hour and minute-by-minute struggle to put off the old man and to put on the new. You know the verse in Galatians 5 where Paul says the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit. That is a reality in the Christian life until you die or until the Lord returns. Another description of walking worthy is to have your conduct be in harmony with the responsibilities which have been placed upon you as being in relationship to God. All that one is saying is live like your Father in heaven. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, verse 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect. Do you remember why? Because your Father in heaven is perfect. And immediately we recognize our inability to perfection. Nowhere in the New Testament are we called to believe in a doctrine of sinless perfectionism, but we are called to believe at every point and on every page that we are to be putting sin to death with everything that is within us. Sin will destroy you. I don't care who you are, what testimony you have before men, I don't care what you've done before the Lord up to this point in your life, that moment that you let your guard down the most. The accuser of the brethren. Who is prowling about like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. given opportunity. He will destroy you. And your Christian testimony is up in smoke. And it may take you a lifetime if ever to regain it. Through great repentance. If the Lord were to so grant it, anything less is an unworthy walk, an unworthy life. Paul says this in Titus chapter two. Granted, these words are in the context of his speaking to bond servants. He says, Bond servants, be obedient to your own masters. Be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good fidelity that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That is a biblical definition of what walking worthy of your calling is. It is to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You would never say, nor would I outright, that I want my actions... I want the things that I do, the things that I say to devalue Christ in the sight of those who are watching the way that I live. We would never say anything like that. But just because we don't say it doesn't mean that it's not a real possibility. I read something this week that made me just kind of push back from my desk and just think on it for a while. An old commentator that I have no idea who he is. He was quoted in another book that I was reading. And this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but if you'll stay with it, I think it will affect you positively. He says, Just as our fellow citizens, the angels, obey God, as their creator so all godly people must ensure that our thoughts, energies, concerns and actions actions should be so guided and directed that God, our heavenly Father and His teaching may be glorified and adorned by them. You good so far? Basically saying the same thing that Paul said in Titus 2 that our actions, energies, thoughts, concerns should adorn The doctrines that we say we believe. But he goes on. And he says, consider. There is such dreadful and disgraceful confusion in the world. And the greater part of the human race is corrupt. And governed by the devil. And are living without paying any attention to God, their creator despising him and the teaching of the gospel and pouring scorn on all of that but God calls and chooses some of the human race by the preaching of the gospel so that there is a flock however weak and a portion of the human race however small it may be that acknowledges worships and glorifies Him here in this life and will afterward do the same for all eternity so that it will not appear that the human race has been created in vain. You understand what he's saying? There are masses of humanity who are living and pouring contempt and scorn on God, His Christ, His gospel, His rules, His commands, His word, His church, And he's saying, yet there is this little, what the scripture calls this little remnant. Having been saved. Who are attempting to acknowledge, worship, and glorify God in everything that they do. So that in the end it will not appear that the human race has been made in vain. Why? Because there are some, however few that they may be, who give glory and honor to God. And after I read this, I had this thought. Knowing from what we have been saved, how dare we live as those who are unredeemed. We know better. We know that the way that we live is not just a reflection on me. If that were the case, then it probably wouldn't be all that concerning. But the way that I live is not just a reflection upon me or my family. It's a reflection upon the Christ who has saved me. And for me not to live worthy of Him and the calling with which He has called me is in essence to live in contempt of grace. It's to say something like this, though it would never be as brash to verbalize it. It would be saying, I know that Christ spilled His blood for me. That He paid my sin debt. That His Father considered Him sin, who knew no sin Punished Him on the cross so that I may go free, but I don't care. I'll live how I want to live. I'll name the name of Christ, but I'm going to go out and live like the devil. If that's you, let me caution you. There may be no grace in you at all. You may be under self-deception that you are Christ's. If there is not that desire within you to put down sin, and if there is not conviction over the way that you live, when it is not matching your profession, then there should be a crying out and a begging of you to a holy God, O oh God, grant me repentance, so that I do not drag the name of Christ through the mud anymore. Help me. I no longer want to mock the price my Savior paid to redeem me from the curse of the law. I want to live in a far different manner. And again, I'm coming back to Martin Lloyd-Jones here. He says, I don't care how packed your head is with knowledge. If you are failing in your life, you will be a hindrance to the spread of the kingdom. You will bring the cause of God and His Christ into disrepute. I don't care what you know. Doesn't matter if you have the greatest systematic theology ever written, whatever that may be, memorize and know it by heart. If your life is not matching it, the kingdom of God is suffering because of you. The kingdom of God is is being held in disrepute because of you. Aren't you thankful Christ is full of mercy and He's full of grace? The plea of the prisoner, what is it? I beseech you, I beg you to do what? To walk, to live worthy of the calling with which you were called. And let me just say this, to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called is to walk worthy of the Christ who called you. To walk worthy of the calling. What does that mean? Notice, The word calling here is used as a noun and then as a verb with which you were called. Paul's placing great emphasis on the calling that a believer experiences, that a Christian has called to be holy, called to be different called to come out from among them and be separate. We're not called to be proud. You know how I know? Because the very next verse says, with all lowliness and gentleness. So what does he mean to walk worthy of the calling? Well, if you would just go back with me to the 10th verse of chapter 2. We've referenced this once before, but If you would go back, it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your calling unto salvation is to walk worthy of Christ, and you do that through the performance of good works. Please hear me. I didn't say we're saved by good works. I'm just saying what the scripture says. If you're saved, you have been saved to do good works. Titus 2 says it a little differently. That God has called a people and he has made them zealous for good works. You know, every so often, I had this conversation with someone, maybe one of you this week. Every so often there is a doctrine that that goes awry And our response to it oftentimes robs us from some aspect of the real truth. And I think this is such with this doctrine of good works. We repel so vehemently against any notion that we are saved by good works, that our salvation is maintained by good works, that we forget that we have been saved unto good works. Good works is to be in the vocabulary of the Christian. It's not to be in the vocabulary of the the unbeliever trying to attain his salvation. It has no part in that conversation. But if you are a believer, then your worthy walk of the calling and the walk that is worthy of Christ is that you exhibit, on every opportunity extended to you, a good work that is pointing to Someone far beyond who you are. It's pointing to the Christ who saved you. John Gill, who was Spurgeon's predecessor, he says this of the call or the calling. He says, it is of special grace and by the Spirit of God. It is the call that has called you out of darkness and into light. It has called you out of bondage into liberty, out of the world and from the company and conversation of the men of the world into the fellowship of Christ and His people. It is the call to participate in the grace of Christ here in this life and into His kingdom and glory hereafter. That's the calling that you've received. If I could say it much more simply than that, you and I have been called to live like Christ. It's that simple. I'm not saying simple to perform. I'm saying that's the calling that we have been given. The call of Christ has brought you to life. You've been raised to walk in newness of life, according to Paul in Romans 6 and verse 3. Then this walking worthy of the calling is to walk in that newness of life. Stop living like a dead man. Stop filling your mind and your thoughts with things that dead men, spiritually dead men and women go after. But he says not only walk worthy of the calling, but he says with which you were called. So what does this do? This takes this whole conversation and it brings us full circle right back into grace. How many of you asked to be called? How many were called because of their good works? How many were called because of any goodness in them at all? None. We were called... While we were sinners, we were called while we were enjoying being sinners, we were called while we were living as such, but yet we heard his voice, he made us to hear him above all of the noise that sin was raising in our lives. Think of the mercy and the grace amongst all the noise that was flooding our lives as unbelievers. There was a voice. And that voice belonged to Christ that over all of that noise spoke so clearly, so decisively and with such authority that everything around you just seemed to stop for a moment. And and like little Samuel, you're like... Yes, Lord, I hear you. This week I saw, and you've seen things like this before, where children, babies who were born deaf or with some hearing defect receive an operation or some device that allows them to hear for the first time. Have you seen those videos where these children hear their parents' voice, particularly their mom's voice, for the first time? And, and what amazement comes over them. What, what a smile. The one I saw this week was just hysterical crying. The baby had never heard before, and here they hear their parents talking to them. And I, I thought when I saw that, what, a, what an illustration of what it's like to hear the voice of Christ calling my name. My spiritual ear had been dead for so long. Couldn't hear a thing, spiritually speaking. I was so enraptured with the things of the world, but He performed an operation upon me. He, he gave me a device, His Spirit. He dug out my ears. That's the, the image of Psalm 40 in verse 6. He cleared everything out so that I could hear His voice. And when I heard His voice, what Reply, could I have had? But yes, Lord, I hear You. For the first time in my life, I hear You. I'll follow You. When You say come, I will come. So Paul says, walk worthy of this calling that You have received, with which You were called, for the glory of the Good Shepherd who called You by name. Walk worthy of Him. Walk worthy of the Christ that called you. This is the expectation of all the high and holy and glorious doctrine of the first three chapters. Now go out and live it. Go out and live in light of it. I've said this before. You may get tired of me saying it, but you and I cannot live the gospel. We live in light of it. The gospel is a message to be declared. The gospel is the message concerning Christ and what he has done to save us. We can't live that, but we can and we should. And we should pray and we should hope and we should endeavor and we should beg God that he would help us to live in light of it. That the gospel will have great effect upon the way that we live and we will not be Christians in name only that it will affect the way that we love our wives, love our husbands, care for our children. It will affect children. Those of you who profess faith in Christ, how you relate to your parents, how are you to honor them? Are you to obey them? To submit to them? It'll affect everything about you. And that's the way it should be. In closing, FF F. Bruce is a name you might recognize. He said something like this. Occasionally someone will come to me and say, Brother, I've got two, two roads ahead of me. The door's been kicked wide open to both of them. I have to now decide and discern which path I'm going to, to walk down. have got two great opportunities. And he says very often... I don't know the situation, rarely even know the person well, and they're asking me for my input on which course of action they are to take. Should they take this job? Should they take that job? Should they buy this house or that house or something far more drastic than that? He says, so often I just find myself saying to them, asking them a question in return, which course of action will be most worthy of your calling? Which course of action will lead you into that place where you can walk worthy of the calling with which you were called and the Christ that has called you? Look down that road as far as you can and see, at the end of it, are you going to be able to glorify Christ or not to a full degree? If so, run that way. If you look down the other and you see that yes, there may be opportunities afforded here and there, For me to walk worthy, there may be great opportunity, but it's going to come with some type of temptation. He says, shut the door, go the opposite way. Pursue that avenue which will lead you to most walk worthy of Christ. So what Paul has done here to this point in Ephesians, the first three chapters... He has instructed, and he has prayed. Now he gives an exhortation to obedience. That's a good model. Parents, that's a good model. Instruct your children, pray for them, and then expect obedience. That's exactly what Paul does. Notice the order. He doesn't expect obedience out of us until he told us who we were. He doesn't expect obedience out of us until we are told the greatness of our salvation and the worthiness of Christ to walk in these ways. So these form a formidable trio of weapons. Instruct, intercede, exhort. And then lastly, only because I heard it again this week and forgive me, if this is one of your favorite sayings, what Paul is saying here is so far contrary to the modern mantra of let go and let God. Paul is saying, no, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Get to the task. Get busy. Walk in a way that is worthy of the calling with which you recalled, and you remember that verse, Philippians 2:12, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, why? for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So let me end where I began. Please don't try to live a worthy life in your own strength, without prayer, without the influence of the word, without the help of the spirit without a multitude of counselors, you'll be frustrated in it. But if you seek the Lord and you pray and you read the Scriptures and you surround yourself with trusted counselors and friends who are walking the same path as you, then we have every good, reasonable expectation and hope that we can, those things being employed, we can live a life and walk a walk that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called and the Christ who called us. God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this exhortation. We receive it as from you. We know the scriptures were written by men, but men who were inspired of God and moved along by your spirit. So we receive this as an expectation of our Father in heaven. Lord, you have every right, certainly have all authority, to place upon us such great expectation that we would live lives worthy of the calling. God, help us to understand rightly that this life cannot be lived in our own strength, but in dependence upon Christ. The best way that we can live this life is through great weakness, the recognition of how unable we are aside from your help. Father, I pray that you would bring all in to the fold that more would hear your voice that your voice would speak to them so clearly so definitively and with such authority that they can't but hear you Father we pray you would do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. But we also pray that you would do it for the good of your people. We pray and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.